Hello, ladies and gentlemen, it's Steve Ellsworth from the Lace Em Up podcast here uh, with a little disclaimer. This was recorded on July 21st, 2019. I fully anticipate that at least one of the topics talked about in this special edition of the program are going to be very dated by the time you listen to this. So just a disclaimer, probably a lot of stuff has happened and we'll react to it accordingly when uh, both myself and Brett uh, are back from vacation. This was a conversation that I had with Colin Teske. You have heard him on this podcast a couple of times. He works at Sportsnet 590 The Fan in Toronto doing sports updates and uh, got a bunch of stuff on the go, as you'll hear about in this special edition. Uh, It was a very fun conversation and I hope you enjoy. And now, it's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a very special edition of the Lace Em Up podcast. I'm Steve Ellsworth. Brett Dubov is not present, and both of us will be on vacation at differing intervals during the next couple of weeks. So before you hear from us again in mid-August, I thought it would be a super fun idea to catch up with my good friend, Colin Teske. He currently works at Sportsnet 590, the fan in Toronto, which means he's probably had a good vantage point of what's been going on with the Toronto Maple Leafs. But as you all know, it's been a crazy offseason in general, so we'll toss in some general free agency questions and stories to keep an eye on heading into next July. So with that being said, Colin Teske, welcome back to the Lace Em Up podcast. Well, Steve, th- thanks for having me. That was a great introduction. And you know what? It- it's been... It hasn't been as crazy as the NBA's offseason, but but certainly, um, at least lately, we have seen some some pretty interesting moves from some teams. We still don't know a lot about some of these restricted free agents. We've seen an offer sheet, which I didn't think we were going to see. But uh, yeah, I think a lot of us are kind of waiting to see where certain pieces fall. And if you're like me... We're just waiting for October to come around to get the season going again. Yeah, yeah, October cannot come soon enough. We'll talk about uh, my Ottawa Senators reluctantly because um, they're still doing some things. They're still in existence, so we'll, we'll get to them in a bit. But our first topic deals with one of the stories we actually brought up last July. That would be the future of Artemi Panarin. And it was around this time 12 months ago when the rumors began to swirl that Columbus didn't have that big city lifestyle or glamorous background that Panarin wanted. And maybe a two-year deal was worth signing, but seven years, eight years, that was a bit much. Sure enough, the Jackets reportedly offer him eight years at $12 per season in the final hours before July 1st. Panarin turns it down. The next day, he is a New York Ranger. But if the Rangers don't get the lucky draw at the NHL draft lottery and take Capo Caco second overall... Some might make the argument that Artemi Panarin signs elsewhere because Colorado was in the hunt for Panarin until the very end. They have a solid group of forwards already. The New York Islanders were in the mix and they have Matt Barzell in the fold already. Do you think no matter what happened at the NHL draft lottery uh, with the Jacob Truba trade uh, with the Winnipeg Jets, despite all of that, if none of that happens, do you think Panarin was going to be Broadway bound no matter what? 
Oh, I think so. And I know there was a, another rumor, too, that it, it was possible that the Florida Panthers were going to be a team that would land him. Oh, yeah. I forgot, about, be... I forgot about the Panthers. Yes, they were in the mix, too. Yeah, and, and that was kind of a recent one, right? Once Dale Talon got Joel Quenville in there, there was a lot of talk about him reuniting with his former coach. And obviously, Quenville and him had a decorated history with Chicago. But from day one, you know, when I, when I heard he wanted out of Columbus and you were hearing some of the rumors and you were hearing that, you know, he wanted to be in a, in a bigger metropolitan city, um, New York, of course, high Russian population. Uh, that was a big part of his decision. I always knew that it, it was likely going to be New York. And even a team like Colorado, who could have sold him on a number of things, including their, their pedigree, their winning, uh, the core he'd be able to play with. But there was something about New York that they can always throw in when they are negotiating with free agents and that they can play at Madison Square Garden. New York is a huge city. It's also the center of the universe to a lot of people. So they've always got that in their back pocket. But, you know, a couple of really important things happened for New York as well. Getting Capo Caco, I think, really sweetened the pot. And you look at Jacob Truba being brought in. I think Panarin really looked at it and said, you know what, this is the team that I think is on the right track. They got a good GM. They've got some really good young talent. And he can now be the centerpiece there. So I, I thought New York all along was going to be the favorite. It's interesting that the Islanders were also in the mix. I think if you look at the Islanders, you could make the argument Matt Barzal is going to be a superstar for a really long time. They've got good stability there with Lou Lamorello, Barry Trotz. So I did think that there was going to be you know, a really good race between the Islanders and the New York Rangers. But ultimately, the Rangers, for some reason in that market, they still have the cachet. And I think it's just because they play at MSG. And, you know, they're right downtown. The Islanders, their, their arena situation is still unfolding. Um, and I think that's kind of what played into his mind. So Artemi Barron going to New York is really interesting. And we've seen it with the Rangers. They, they do not do rebuilds. I mean, they say they do, but if you look at the course of their history, especially the last 20 years, they love to sign marquee free agents and uh, to put a winner on the ice right away in that market. Yeah, it's it's tough to see a well-done rebuild done in about, like, not even 18 months. <laughs> I guess only in New York that happens. Um, in his first two seasons as an NHLer, Panarin was in Chicago playing on Patrick Kane's line, and when he moved to Columbus, he posted back-to-back career years and really drove the boat offensively. He can really dictate the pace of a hockey game. Like, if you, if you just look at his possession time of the offensive zone over 75 minutes um during the regular season uh 190 slot pass completions 505 controlled entries 778 controlled exits in all three of those categories he ranked 11th in the league amongst forwards this past year and when you play on a team like the blue jackets who really struggled to strike on the power play in the regular season and sat in the league's bottom 10 in each of the last two seasons on the power play you need a possession driver to get things going at even strength. And in 2018-2019, Panarin got 28 goals, which is one more than what he got the year before. Took 37 fewer shots than his career high from the previous year. Still got six power play goals, eight game winners, four overtime winners, despite his average ice time per contest decreasing by 17 seconds compared to 2017-18. And that opened the door for Cam Atkinson to score 41 goals on 295 shots. Pierre-Luc Dubois got 27 goals and 61 points on his own 
um, did that with 174 shots on goal. Uh, Josh Anderson had 27 goals and 230 shots to his name as well. When you look at the Rangers and you look at Mika Zibanejad, who was in the NHL's top 10 in faceoffs taken last year, you look at Capocacco, who has the hype of a first overall pick. I can really see the bread man, Mika Zibanejad and Capocacco forming a top line that in a couple of years could be one of the NHL's deadliest. Is that a bit of a stretch? I don't think it is, Steve, because I think now in, in today's NHL landscape, you know, the league is trending younger. And these are smart young players who know that they are going to get paid right away, as opposed to before where you would wait till you were about your mid-20s and your 30s and that's where that big contract will be waiting for you. But, you know, teams figured it out. They said, you know what, they weren't going to give big, long contracts to, to players that were getting into their 30s. It just wasn't smart business anymore. So now these young players have approached it from a business angle, and, and they're getting paid right away, and rightfully so. Some of these young players that step in can make a difference right away. And I think some of these teams realize there is no three- to five-year rebuild, per se, anymore, that – and if you, if you really do draft well and you do your scouting, you can really turn this around really quick. And I look at New York, I look at New Jersey, and I think both of those teams realize that. Well, they got into the lottery, they got Jack Hughes, they got Capo Caco, and all of a sudden they have a one-two punch in both those markets. And, and they can really start to put in motion a plan to get back on track. And I look at New York, I thought they were a really competitive team last year. They played a lot of their young guys. They got a lot of experience. And I think that's going to be beneficial going forward. In Capo Caco, let's, let's be honest here, he could have gone first overall. I watched him at the World Championship for Finland, and he's playing against men, and he didn't look out of place. So I, I think Capo Caco is going to be the real deal. And I look at Artemi Panarin as a player that I think in the last couple years has really got on people's radars more. Even in Columbus, out of the light of Chicago without Taves and Kane, I think Artemi Panarin has started to create the conversation around himself as being a top 10, top 15 player in the league, and he's quietly been putting up great numbers. So I think you add those two pieces, and New York is all of a sudden a really dangerous team on paper. Just taking a look at um, Capo Caco at those international tournaments, you're right, he didn't look out of place at all, not even 20 years old. Um, I, I thought at the last second that uh, New Jersey was going to take him first overall. Didn't surprise me, obviously, that Jack Hughes went first overall, given the hype that he's had for the past year and a bit. But uh, I thought there was a realistic shot of Capo Caco getting drafted first overall. I totally agree with you there. Um, sorry, Blue Jackets fans that listen to this podcast. We're going to stick with the Blue Jackets. Uh, I feel a degree of empathy for hockey fans in Columbus right now as a Sens fan because the team that they cheer for never won a playoff series in franchise history before a couple months ago. They go on to sweep one of the best NHL regular season teams ever assembled, lose to the Bruins in the second round, then lose three critical pieces on July 1st. We all know how much change has happened in Ottawa since they went to the Eastern Conference Finals in 2017. The landscape of the NHL can change in an instant. And while Artemi Panarin going to the Rangers hurts, I would argue Sergei Bobrovsky going to the Florida Panthers hurts the most. Because in order to get by and contend with the offensive pieces they had, Sergei Bobrovsky had to be on the case every time. And in the playoffs, Columbus showed what they were capable of, and it all started with Sergei in goal. 
Come July 1st, he's already in South Beach accepting a seven-year contract with the Florida Panthers, which, if you're Florida, that's great because you've been starving for quality, consistent goaltending for a few years now. $10 million per year for any goalie is a risky gamble. At the same time, what's also risky is going into battle in the mighty Atlantic Division, which features teams like Tampa Bay, Toronto, Boston, who not only have a deadly top line and offensive depth galore, but those three teams also have a top 10 netminder in the NHL on their side. Prior to getting Sergei Bobrovsky, Florida did not have that, and the team as a whole will likely improve with a proven winner behind the bench in Joel Quenville. No matter the price, was this gamble worth making if you're Dale Talon? So this is a very interesting question. I'm going to say yes, but I think Florida now, in a way, has put themselves in the same position that Columbus was in. And I can rationalize with Columbus this year having you know a fan base that was starving just for a playoff victory, and they had so many close calls. They had years where they lost to Pittsburgh when they went on to win a Stanley Cup. They had a year last year where they basically had the Washington Capitals on the ropes. If they win that game in overtime, Washington Capitals likely are done. And who knows, maybe Columbus is is suiting up in an Eastern Conference final or a Stanley Cup final, but they always seem to run in to this bad luck. So I can I can see why they wanted to go all in. No one thought they could beat Tampa Bay, and their fan base got to see a huge upset in the few, in the first round. And Sergei Bobrovsky was a big part of that. But there was some conversation, at least late in the regular season, when Columbus was struggling and Bobrovsky was struggling. A lot of people were starting to think if that was going to cost him money in the offseason. Ultimately, it didn't. He played very well in the postseason, especially in that Tampa Bay series. And I look at the Lightning as a team that were so good in the regular season, but when they faced a really good goaltender, I think it started to seep into their heads. And you could just see that in their play. So now that he goes in the same division as the Lightning, he goes to a team like Florida where you're playing against really good teams with lots of star power in that division. I completely get why Dale Talon wanted to go after a starting goaltender. They desperately needed it, too. You know, you can't just bring back James Reimer and have Roberto Luongo walk out the door and retire and try to sell your fans that you're winning. You don't just go and get Joel Quenville as well and not give him a good starting goaltender and try to surround him with as much talent as possible. They, they've made a really heavy investment there. They're going all in. They don't want to be the doormat of that division anymore. So I completely get that. The money is risky. His age is a bit risky. But we all know you got to pay a premium in this league for talent. And I would argue starting goaltending, too, is one of those things that you can, you can overpay for, and it makes sense in the long run. There are certain areas in the game where I wouldn't overpay for, and I would try to develop internally and maybe go a cheaper route. Goaltending is not one of them, Steve. So I completely get why Florida went after Bobrovsky. And I think it's just going to be really interesting now because everyone usually thought Florida would be a team that you could beat in this division. Not so much anymore. You look at some of the goaltenders in division, Steve, you've got Freddie Anderson, you've got Tuka Rask, you've got Carey Price, and now Bobrovsky all in the same division, which is going to make for a lot of great matchups this year. Yeah, don't forget Andre Vasilevsky in Tampa Bay. Who, Andre uh, Vasilevsky, too. There you go. I, com- I completely forgot him. So <laughs> the goaltending bar in that division alone is going to be scary for all those teams competing. Mm-hmm. I- I've said this on the podcast before. You have Jonathan Huberto hitting his stride. You have Alex Barkov almost getting 100 points last year. You could argue that he's only going to get better after this year. Uh, Trocek is a quality top six forward already. 
signing Bobrovsky to this massive contract might mean saying goodbye to a goal scorer like Mike Hoffman or a top six forward in Evgeny Dadanov that has really emerged as a top six forward since rejoining the Panthers in 2017. He has 138 points in his last 156 NHL games, 28 goals in each of the last two seasons. And I like the depth signings of Brett Connolly and Anton Strawman, but almost $6 million for Strawman for three years, I would argue that depth signing hurts the team more in terms of price tag and performance. If Bobrovsky is on his game, you know what you're getting. You cannot waste prime years of Alex Barkov and Jonathan Huberto waiting for Spencer Knight to develop as a goaltender. When Bobrovsky is doing his job in Florida, you spend that time developing your goalie of the future properly. They can't afford to rush Spencer Knight, just throw him into the Florida sunshine, expecting him to be the next Carey Price. That rarely works in the NHL these days. And in order to contend in this tough division, I think they need a guy like Sergei Bobrovsky. So Florida will be an interesting team to watch. Another interesting team to watch is the National Predators, who, with a Roman Yossi extension on the horizon and with the positive development of Matthias Ekholm and the potential for Dante Fabro to emerge as a top four defenseman himself, they had an interesting situation on defense heading into the offseason. And... P.K. Subban's cap hit was probably going to hurt the Nashville Predators in the coming years. So they traded him to New Jersey on NHL draft weekend for a very underwhelming return, considering he was previously traded for Shea Weber in a one-for-one trade with Montreal. And everyone was curious as to what David Poyle was up to. And then in the days leading up to the start of free agency, Matt Duchesne was strongly considering a future in Nashville. And he made it official on July 1st by signing a seven-year contract worth $8 million per year. That contract includes a seven-team no-trade list, but that doesn't kick in until the final three seasons of his contract. When you consider the dollar figures being invested into some of the other high-end talents, is it fair to call Matt Duchesne's contract a bargain? Tough to say bargain for me. I think Matt Duchesne is a really good player, and a lot of teams would sign up to have him. He's getting a bit older, and I think, again, in free agency, you know, you're going up against other teams. You want to lock in the player, and and you want to do it in a quick fashion so you can secure that player. And that sometimes leads to a lot of decisions where I think GMs, they, they look back on it, and if you get them in a candid moment, they sometimes admit that, you know, they might have overpaid. And, and that's where you see a lot of regrets come in. I like Matt Duchesne, but I, I think in Nashville's case, they were so desperate to get that, that, that center position shored up. Kyle Turris didn't work out last year. And who knows about his future with that team. But I do think that they overpaid him a little bit. I think he's a really nice player, but I think you can lock him in as a 65, 75-point guy. And um, Nashville, for me, they've had so many close calls in the playoffs. They've come close to winning the Cup, and they've been right there for the last five or six years. And they're just they're kind of like Washington was for so long. They're just trying to figure it out. They're trying to bring back most of the same core and taking their shot year after year. But I can sense a little bit of desperation in David Poyle and Nashville. They've had a great core on the blue line. Their forwards, I think, are good but they're trying to tweak it just a little bit to give them that extra edge, especially in the Western Conference. So we'll see if it pays off for Matt Duchesne, but I I wouldn't call it a bargain signing for Nashville. Just taking a look at at what Matt Duchesne was able to do last year, he really takes 
a bit of the pressure off of Ryan Johansson as the number one center. You're right. They they needed to get uh, the center position shored up a little bit. Uh, you're getting a player, if you're David Poyle, you're getting a player that's coming off one of the best seasons of his NHL career. And a good chunk of those stats came with a very crappy Ottawa Senators team. His shooting percentage was over 20% before the trade to Columbus, which is absolutely bonkers. And I think Matt Duchesne would be a great fit on a line with Mikhail Granlund and Kyle Turris on line two. Those two players didn't really have a good second half. They need to get going. I think Duchesne is the guy that could really stir the drink on that line. And if you consider the fully loaded contracts being dished out by other teams... I would say it is a major bargain, especially given the fact that he doesn't have a no trade or no move in the first four years. Like Panarin, you see him getting a no move, Bobrovsky getting a no move, Jacob Truba getting a no move as well. Um, Even Kevin Hayes, who we'll talk about later, he somehow got a no move clause too. Um, Matt Duchesne doesn't have any of that added stuff in the first four years of his deal, which I think is really going to help Nashville there. Uh, but you mentioned uh, that roster moves remain a possibility with players like Mikhail Granlund and Craig Smith nearing the end of their deals. At some point, will the Preds have to sacrifice someone with term like Kyle Turris? Because as you alluded to, since they signed him to that contract shortly after the Matt Duchesne trade in November 2017, consistently he hasn't been the player they were hoping he would be. It's true, and, and I remember when he was leaving Ottawa, there was there was lots of uproar, and people in Ottawa were mad that the Senators wouldn't offer him a long-term deal. And I'll tell you right now, I think a lot of those Sens fans are pretty quiet because <laughs> Calters would not have a good year, and I don't think the Senators were that sold on him long-term. And, and that that prediction is, is looking like it's paid off for Ottawa. I think Kyle Turris can still be a serviceable player elsewhere and maybe a change of scenery will help him again, but he, he's bounced around to a few teams now, and I think if you're Nashville, it's going to be a tough contract to move, and you got to hope that he has at least a decent, decent first half of the year, and you got to see if you can get some kind of market value for him, or else I see it being kind of like a Patrick Marlowe with the, with the Leafs situation, where you might have to attach a really good prospect, or you might have to attach a draft pick just to get that contract off the books. And there could be a team that needs to hit the floor that might want to take on Kyle Turris. But that contract now all of a sudden um, becomes detrimental to a team like Nashville that's so close to winning but are going to have to pay certain guys coming up. And I just don't know how David Poyle is going to maneuver around that. I think the best case is you bring him back and you hope that he finds his form again and you can now have a deadly you know, three-headed attack at center with Johansson, Duchesne, and Turris. And you hope that that works out. But... I think Kyle Turris is starting to age, and he's on the wrong side of his playing career. I think that's definitely possible. If his, if his numbers don't reflect his contract following the end of this year, he could be getting moved. But even even if he does well, if this team's in a cap crunch, might not even matter how well he plays. Kyle Turris might be on his way out, which is a shame. He's a great guy. Uh, I also find it very, very funny that after getting traded for one another, Kyle Turris and Matt Duchesne both play on the same team. That is typical Ottawa Senators right there. Um, speaking of Ottawa Senators, continuing at the former Senators team, we're going to talk about, kind of, sort of, we're going to talk about Robin Leonard, uh, more specifically the goaltending situation with the New York Islanders, because Robin Leonard always maintained that he wanted to remain with the New York Islanders. He wanted good financial value for himself. He also wanted term. 
And early on, the term was the big issue and probably part of the reason why negotiations weren't picking up as fast as they probably should have. He also didn't spend too much time talking to other teams. He maintained that his focus was making things work in Long Island. But in the final days of June, the Islanders gave Robin Leonard a short-term offer with a financial figure close to what he wanted. He took a few days to think about it, checks in on July 1st to see what the Islanders' game plan is. By that point, they had uh, already signed Simeon Varlamov to a four-year deal, along with a no-trade clause for all four years. Will Lou Lamorello seriously regret taking Simeon Varlamov over Robin Leonard? This is a, this is one of the more curious moves of the offseason. And, you know, I think in Robin Leonard's case, I, I think he, he absolutely should bet on himself. Um, you know, coming off what happened in Buffalo with the mental health issues. I mean, he's been through a lot. So I, I have a soft spot for Robin Leonard. Um, growing up in Ottawa, I, I never liked that he got dealt. I always thought he was going to be the goaltender of the future. And we got to see some of that raw talent and that fire while he was with the Ottawa Senators. But it's a curious move for me. I can understand it from Lou Lamorello because as good as Robin Leonard was, he was a tandem last year. Him and Thomas Grice were splitting time. And, you know, it, it's one of those moves where you wonder, okay, is Robin Leonard a goaltender that can play 60, 65 games? Or is he better playing in more of a split setup? And we're starting to see that more in the NHL. We're seeing it in Dallas, especially with Kudobin and Ben Bishop. And that tandem seemed to work. So some teams are looking at that where they want to have, you know, maybe an above average backup and a starter that might need more nights off. And it seems to work for some teams. I think, you know, Semyon Varlamov has had his ups and downs. But when you pair him maybe with a guy like Thomas Grice, and if you have, uh, a capable backup, maybe Varlamov takes off and, and he can be a really good goaltender. I think for Chicago, it's a gamble you take. They've had some issues in goal for a long time, and I, I would gamble on, on a Corey Crawford, and I think Chicago kind of knows that they've, they've kind of shuffled the deck there a little bit, and, and they think they can take another stab at the postseason. they still got a core that's won cups and been to the playoffs, so I think they're taking another shot at it. But if you're Robin Leonard, I feel a little bit jaded by this because you just delivered for the Islanders. You had a great season there. You were able to grow personally um, after what happened in Buffalo. So, so this is, uh, this is going to be an interesting year for him. I, I trust that he can go to Chicago and be successful, but I do understand why the Islanders went in a different direction, if that makes sense. And, and you mentioned uh, the 1A, 1B kind of tandem there. Um, you, you look at... Uh, the situation in St. Louis when it was uh, Yaroslav Halak and Brian Elliott and uh, the system that uh, Brian Elliott was under. Both goalies really thrived in that environment. Um, you look at uh, Yaro Halak and Tuka Rask, um, how that worked out in Boston. Tuka Rask went into the playoffs a bit more fresh, and he really thrived in that playoff environment as a result of Halak getting more of a workload in the regular season. So I think the 1A, 1B tandem probably works better for Robin Leonard and it's something maybe that we're going to see more and more of because not all the goalies can handle the 60 plus game workload season after season we've seen guys like Sergei Bobrovsky take it performance wise as a result of getting a lot of ice time in previous years and it catches up with them we've seen with Carey Price Uh, I also have faith in Mitch Korn and Barry Trotz to do what they did with Robin Leonard and maybe repeat that same level of success with Varlamov. 
But at the same time, Simeon Verlamov has an injury history. Um, that's something that could hinder whatever progress they make with him. And I hear that also on the other side of the coin that Varlamov could be a good mentor to Ilya Sorokin, a talented Russian goalie that's playing overseas, hasn't really said whether he'll commit to the Islanders if he ever does. If Sorokin's part of the picture, maybe getting Varlamov helps with that, but uh, we'll have to wait and see there. Uh, speaking of the Islanders, they might really regret the Varlamov pact in July 2021 when free agency opens, and that's because a lot of notable goalies could be on the open market um, in two years' time. Here's a short list. Tuka Rask, Frederick Anderson, Pecorine, Devin Dubnik, Antti Ranta, Henrik Lundqvist, Philip Grubauer, Peter Morazic, Carter Hutton, Curtis McElhaney, Jake Allen. And after Jordan Bennington accepted a two-year bridge deal with the Blues, he is eligible to join that impressive list of free agent goalies as well. This is a guy who just turned 26 years old a couple weeks ago. He will be 27 going on 28 when free agency opens in July 2021. Out of the list of goalies I mentioned, he is the youngest on that list. And if he proves over the next two years that his miracle run with the St. Louis Blues wasn't a fluke, I think he will get interest from a lot of teams as a free agent. For right now, obviously, this was the smartest move for Doug Armstrong and the Blues to make, but... What are the chances in two years' time this will backfire big time? Well, I think it's a smart move from Doug Armstrong. And I think with goaltending, we've seen it where you can have a guy catch lightning in a bottle and it all works for a six-month period. So I don't think it was a bad move to bridge Jordan Bennington. And I look at the term of that contract. It's a very team-friendly deal. So if you're Doug Armstrong, you can lock up your goaltender and you still have some flexibility cap-wise, and you can still keep that same core together to go right back and and compete for a Stanley Cup again. So I think it was the right move from Armstrong. Goaltending, you just never know. It is the hardest position to really figure out. And I think part of Doug Armstrong looks at it and says, okay, Jordan Biddington had a great year, but he also took you know almost six or seven years to get to this point. So there obviously were some flaws in his game leading up to that. Goaltenders take a long time to marinate and to develop, and you usually see them hit their peak after 25-26. So maybe Jordan Bennington has really turned the corner, and he is going to be you know, the next stud goaltender in this league. You just don't know, but a bridge deal I think is fair, and I think if you're Jordan Bennington, even after those two years, I think you might tend to side of the team like St. Louis that's stuck with you, you want to cup with, and you might have some loyalty there. So Doug Armstrong, I think, feels confident that in two years, if Jordan Bennington is still performing, that he'll likely want to re-sign in St. Louis. We all remember Cam Ward and his monster run in 2006 with the Hurricanes, and he really scored big on his next deal following that playoff run and didn't really live up to that dominant playoff performance after that the rest of his career. Um, he had He had shades of brilliance, but overall... Um, wasn't as dominant as that 2006 playoff run. You also look at Matt Murray with the Pittsburgh Penguins winning a pair of Stanley Cups as a quote-unquote rookie. He was a rookie both years, technically. But over the past two seasons, he has either been injured or his play has been inconsistent. And you're right. I think this is a safer route to go with the goalie that really put this team back together, played a pivotal role in the Blues' first Stanley Cup title, 
and give him two years to really prove himself. It seemed no matter how big the stage was, Jordan Bennington was up for the challenge. And when it looked like he was rattled in the playoffs, he had a massive response the next game. If he can replicate his second half in the next two years, he will get a ton of calls from other teams when he becomes a free agent. But at the same time, I think it was wise for both sides to go with the two-year deal. And we'll see if both sides get rewarded in two years' time. Speaking of RFAs, the following RFAs have not been signed. Braden Point, Miko Rantanen, Patrick Laine, Kyle Connor, Zach Wierenski, Charlie McAvoy, Mitch Marner. Some of the guys on this list can average 30 goals a season. Others can average 80 to 90 points. Some have done both. And the only super RFA that has signed his first big boy contract is Sebastian Ajo, and it only got done as quickly as it did because the Canadians made an offer sheet to him, which he signed, and then the Carolina Hurricanes matched Montreal's offer. Why do you think the big-name RFAs are playing the waiting game, and do you think we'll see these big-name players signing for a lesser term, such as five years instead of eight? Well, I think William Nylander is the guy that has kind of changed the game here. I think him waiting, and as much as it did harm his game in the second half of the season, and you can argue that the Maple Leafs also lost as well, um, I think what players realize is William Nylander got every penny he wanted, and he got paid. And that is so important to some of these players, and I don't blame them. I, I am pro player on this, and I think players realize now that um, they have to sign their entry-level deal, and they're usually playing in the pros on that entry-level deal, not making a whole lot of money relative to what they can make in their second contract. I know that like 800, 900 grand is a lot of money for you and I, but for an NHL player, when, when you're counted on to produce, that, that's not a lot of money. So I think they know on that second deal they have really got to hit it, and they've really got to maximize that opportunity. I will say this, though. I, I do think... Some of these teams are smart, too, and they know that it's really just a game of chicken because as much as offer sheets would make things interesting for guys like you and me, the, the thing about offer sheets is a team like Arizona or Buffalo could, could throw a ton of money at a player like Mitch Marner, but Mitch Marner has to want to go to that market. So when I look at some of these players that you just mentioned, Ranton and Line, Connor, Braden Point, Mitch Marner, I think they want to stay with their current team. But it's just about the dollar figure, and both sides right now are, are just trying to puff their chest and trying to get every dollar they can. And I really don't see any of those players leaving and going elsewhere. I like it because I want things to be more interesting. I think offer sheets drive up the interest. And what we've seen in the NBA is that interest in the offseason is a really good thing, and player movement is a really good thing for the league as a whole. But I think all those players re-sign, it's just a matter of time. And I think once you get to August, and the closer you walk to September with training camp, that's where things get really nerve-wracking for both sides. And I think all these players don't want to do what William Nylander did and lose half a year and then have to play catch-up in the second half of the season. What's funny about the Toronto Maple Leafs is ever since Austin Matthews signed his contract extension, and it was – early to mid-February, somewhere around there. Ever since Matthew signed that contract, the most talked about RFA is Mitch Marner. And maybe it's because it's the Leafs and maybe it's because the media really shines a spotlight on them, but the negotiations have been ongoing. Neither side seems to be giving up any sort of ground at this point, which 
doesn't simplify things at all. And uh, TSN's Bob McKenzie believes the best resolution is someone offer sheeting Mitch Marner, regardless if the Leafs choose to match it or not. And if you doubt Kyle Dubas's ability to play the waiting game, as you mentioned, William Nylander sat out until December 1st in the very final minutes before signing a six-year deal to stay with the team. There's no question Richie Mitch is going to get paid. He doesn't have to rely on Matthews for offense. He can drive the boat, dictate the pace all by himself. How do you see this situation unfolding, and do you think it will get to the point where he's missing regular season games in October? No, I, I have to think, Steve, that he is, he is in the Leafs lineup on opening night. I just cannot see the Leafs or Mitch Marner wanting to go that route. I think an offer sheet by anybody would really speed up the process, and that would re- you'd really get to gauge the temperature of the room once an offer sheet was on the table. But I, I think Kyle Dubas is a really smart guy. He's all about analytics. The analytics community loves Mitch Marner, and for good reason. I mean, I love Mitch Marner, too. This guy is incredible. And, you know, he I, you can argue, you can really make the argument that he is the most valuable player on the Toronto Maple Leafs. And if you listen to Bruce Cassidy, head coach of the Boston Bruins, he had nothing but great things to say about Mitch Marner. And when you get that kind of praise from an opposing coach and a rival coach, I think that tells you all you need to know. But I expect that Mitch Marner will be in the lineup for the Maple Leafs. There's a lot riding on this season. Steve, you don't go out and get Tyson Berry if you're not all in. And you don't make that Jake Muzzin trade last year if you're not all in. You don't bring in John Tavares. You know, the big summer acquisition if you're not all in. And the Maple Leafs know that this is their window. This is their time. And you know, in a couple of years, this Maple Leafs team might look a whole lot different just because of the cap structure. So I think that puts a lot of emphasis on Mitch Marner playing opening night, especially heading into this season. Yeah, it's funny you mention uh, about the Tyson Berry trade because we're going to stick with the Leafs theme here. Um, they shed a bit of cap space before that by trading Nikita Zaitsev and Connor Brown on July 1st to Ottawa. And then hours later, Nazem Kadri becomes the next salary cap casualty. And I'm thinking, okay, Kyle Dewis is one step closer to getting Mitch Marner signed, giving him what he wants. Perfect. And then word gets out that on top of Kadri leaving, the Maple Leafs bring in Alex Kerfoot and Tyson Berry from the Colorado Avalanche. So (laughs) any cap room that they had, they pretty much gave it right back. And there's no doubt that Tyson Berry is a boost to Toronto's defense because they have no shortage of depth on the left side but the top defenders on the right side last year were Justin Hall and Nikita Zaitsev it would be Justin Hall and Cody Ceci if they don't get Tyson Berry in this trade but when you get a right-handed version of Morgan Riley it will come at a price down the road because Berry is going to be a free agent soon so with the short-term defense that they have with the assumption that Mitch Marner is going to get paid a lot of money to stay in Toronto, and with most of their obvious trade bait pieces on different NHL teams like Patrick Marlowe and Nazem Kadri and Nikita Zaitsev, give me a probability from 0 to 100% that William Nylander is not only changing jersey numbers, but changing jerseys in the next 12 months. Well, that's a really, really great question because... I look at the Mitch Marner situation right now, and maybe part of what's stalling the process is that the Leafs might have to make another move to make room to sign him. That could be a possibility. They're they're right up against the cap right now. 
Um, I looked at William Nylander, though, and coming off the season he just had, you're not going to get anywhere close to market value for him. And I think if you're the Maple Leafs, the smart move would be to keep him and to double down on his potential and, and to gamble on him having a breakout season and not playing somewhere else and, and not getting assets back that you're not exactly happy with. Now, there could be a case in a year from now where the Maple Leafs have to make a really tough decision, and they've got some big UFAs coming up still. You mentioned Freddie Anderson in a couple of years. You've got both Muzzin and Barry that are going to be UFAs next summer. And the Leafs' blue line, it, it's already been reshaped, but it could look a whole lot different next year. So there's going to be some big decisions on player personnel for Kyle Dubas to make. And if William Nylander has another subpar year, um, I would expect that he would be one player that would be overboard in, in Toronto. At the same time, I give major kudos to Kyle Dubas for extending Kasperi Kapanen, Andreas Janssen, and Alex Kerfoot to extensions of at least three years because those three guys have a combined annual cap hit just under $10 million, which is a pretty savvy move by Kyle there. Uh, and Toronto's going to need a lot more of those small contracts, those small affordable contracts, because like you mentioned, Morgan Riley in three years is going to be a UFA. Freddie Anderson in two years will be a UFA. Both are making uh, $5 million per season. And I highly doubt they sign on for the AAV they are currently signed on for. Uh, You mentioned Barry and Muzzin being UFAs next July. Barry is probably the biggest offensive defenseman available for July 2020, so he's probably going to want a pay raise. I heard that maybe as much as $8 million per season, which would be pretty tough for the Leafs to afford. Um, Jake Muzzin is making $4 million per on his current deal. Probably going to want more than that for his next one. And they have a bunch of defensive prospects waiting in the wings, and those prospects have a ton of upside, but the Mitch Marner contract will result in cap casualties either way, offense, defense, you name it. And if it's not on the back end, probably the most expendable piece of their forward group at the moment appears to be William Nylander, so we'll see what happens there. Speaking of teams in cap trouble... Uh, Even with the departures of Jonas Donskoy and Joel Pavelski, the San Jose Sharks are in win-now mode and strapped financially. And I've questioned many times on the show the amount of loyalty that Doug Wilson has for his core group of players, which is far too much. Like, take a look at this. The following players have a list of three teams that they'd be willing to accept a trade to. Three team trades. You rarely see that. And he's given that to the following players. Logan Couture, Evander Kane, Brent Burns, Martin Jones. So if you decide to trade one of them, your trading partner could be one of the 27 or 28 teams that they would have to waive their no-trade clause for. In the case of Mark Edward Vlasic, he's got a three-team trade list from 2023 to 2026. Until then, he's got a no-move clause. Eric Carlson has a no-move all the way through his eight-year deal that he just signed in mid-June. All of those guys are under contract for the next five years at least, and their top three defensemen have a combined cap hit for $26.5 million over the next six years. When will time catch up with the San Jose Sharks, Colin Teske? It's a great question because everyone thought it's going to happen sooner or later, and it never has. San Jose has been one of the rare teams that has been a playoff team and a team that has been competitive for Almost a decade, you can argue. And I look at them now, and they have some core pieces that have left. Joe Pavelski, I mean, he was the lifeblood of that team for, for so many years, including this past year. Seeing him move on is going to be tough. But 
the San Jose Sharks do an amazing job of finding talent late in rounds. And Jonas Donskoy was one of them, Timo Meyer. They get these players that, I don't know how, but they have a great scouting staff, especially in Europe, where they find this talent that might be slightly underrated, and they turn them into really great professionals. The no-movement clause, that's a dangerous game to play. But if you're Doug Wilson, your number one priority is to lock up your core, and that's what he's done, and then you kind of shuffle the deck around them, and that's what they're trying to do right now. So I still think Tampa, or not Tampa Bay, pardon me, San Jose can be very competitive, and I still think with that blue line, I still think they've got another couple years where they can wring out the towel and still be one of the most dominant blue lines in the NHL. I'm just very interested by San Jose because I've expected them to hit a wall eventually. I really thought this was the year um, they would win a Stanley Cup. I thought just the way things played out, and the way that veteran core was playing, I think they realized, too, that not seeing Tampa Bay on the other side and seeing a few other upsets really opened things up. And you never know. But I think they're still going to be a playoff team. But I think going forward, I'm a little nervous if I'm a Sharks fan because they've got some contracts that are going to be tough to move. I think after um, that phantom call on Vegas, I thought everyone thought, okay, this year is going to be different. The hockey gods are now on their side. And then um, the controversy with the Blues in Game 3 of the Conference Finals happened, and everyone thought, okay, surely now they're winning the Cup. And then they drop three in a row, and they're done. You mentioned uh, Timo Meyer. Doug Wilson gave him a four-year contract extension at $6 million per year. He will remain a restricted free agent once that deal is done. And while doing that, Doug Wilson also managed to keep Kevin LeBanc for one year at $1 million. I don't care if he's your weakest penalty killer. A guy who posts 50 to 60 points is worth more than $1 million. How would you grade those two signings from Doug Wilson, Colin? Well, I think Kevin LeBanc is a huge value signing. I loved watching him play when he played for the Barry Colts, and he was a player that San Jose swooped in on. He was an older player on the OHL and, and didn't exactly catch the eye in his draft year when he was 18. But when he was 20, turned a lot of heads in that league. Doug Wilson swooped in and signed him, and a couple years later, you know, he was a key piece on that San Jose team. So I really like that signing. I like Kevin LeBanc, and I don't know how Doug Wilson does it, but he seems to really um, sell San Jose. He gets players to come there, and they don't want to leave San Jose. And for Timo Meyer's case, too, I, I really think that $6 million could pay off in a couple of years. And we look back on that deal, and we go, wow, $6 million for a player like Timo Meyer, that's a great deal. And I, I think Timo Meyer hasn't even scratched the surface on his potential. And I think he's going to be a really great top six forward for the next couple of years. And I just think Doug Wilson's got a great eye for talent. And Timo Meyer is one of those players that is going to be a San Jose Shark for a long time. The fact that he's going to be an RFA after four years gives the San Jose Sharks, I think, the leg up in that negotiation. And they can kind of control the message and they can kind of negotiate with him. And I think he's going to be a Shark long term. So I think with Doug Wilson there, he's proven... He can, he can really build a team. He knows what he's doing. He's shrewd when he has to be. But Timo Meyer and Kevin LeBanc are, are two really great signings that kind of went unnoticed this offseason. Yeah, in the case of Timo Meyer, um, you look at the Sharks as a team. They uh, were sixth in most shots on goal per game during the regular season. Um, and if you look where Pavelski ranked, you, obviously 38 goals from Joe Pavelski, that's going to be a tough pill to swallow for the Sharks, not getting that back. But he finished fifth in shots on goal. 
this past season on the team. And Timo Meyer finished third with 250 shots. Uh, the year before, he had a 20-goal season, over 200 shots again. And that year, he wasn't really playing with the likes of Pavelski or Logan Couture at all. In fact, he didn't really start playing with those guys regularly until the start of this past season. And what happened? He ends up getting a 30-goal season, over 60 points. Um, he can uh, deflect shots as well as Pavelski. Um, tip shots, he's pretty good at that too. He was in the league's top 20. Um, so any fear of losing that Pavelski quality of a guy that can go to the net uh, is probably going to hurt a bit less when you consider that Timo Meyer can do a lot of what Joe Pavelski can do. And he's also younger and the offensive upside is still there. There's a lot of untapped potential. And the fact that he's still an RFA after this deal really helps the Sharks because they don't have to worry about him going to the open market and getting overpriced because if he went to the open market there, I I don't think the Sharks would have uh, the cap room to um, match up with a lot of the other teams that could probably offer more than they could. And then you look at the Kevin LeBanc contract, like we're talking about guys that didn't even average like 16 to 17 minutes per game this past season. And you look at uh, Kevin LeBanc, he ranked fifth in total power play time amongst shark skaters this past year the year before same thing he was also in the top five the past two seasons alone he has 38 power play points which is ridiculous Uh, again not playing with the likes of Pavelski with the likes of Logan Couture all that much Um, playing with some of I I wouldn't call them non-stars but like he, he was playing outside of the top line with some with some very good players, but like on a lot of other teams, he could be a valuable top six forward for them and get a lot more time on ice per game. And he's working on his 200-foot game. He's really starting to evolve as more of a two-way player. But when I look at his junior hockey statistics, it's mind-blowing the ceiling that this guy has. Consider this for a second. Kevin LeBanc in 2015-16 led all OHL skaters in scoring He had 127 points in 65 games. The players behind him in OHL scoring were as follows. Christian Dvorak, Mitch Marner, Dylan Strom, Matthew Kachuk, Andrew Mangiapane, Alex Dabrinkit, Travis Konechny, Mike Amadio, Christian Fisher. There are three RFAs on the list that I just mentioned that are going to get the Brinks truck uh, either this offseason or next offseason. It's incredible how LeBanc only got a million dollars for one year. That'll be interesting uh, to watch as the season progresses. Uh, we talked a bit about uh, Arizona. The odds of them making the playoffs these days are about as likely as Arizona landing an established superstar via trade, which are small. But after overcoming a tidal wave of injuries and nearly making the postseason last year, There was a sense of optimism for a team that has struggled in recent memory to not only find the perfect location to play hockey, but stable ownership. And now, thanks to Jim Rutherford and the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Arizona Coyotes have Phil Kessel on their team. And say what you will about Phil the Thrill in his two-way game or his work ethic, but you can easily make the argument that this was the organization's biggest all-star acquisition since Jeremy Roenick joined them in the mid-1990s. Because Phil Kessel was almost traded to Minnesota. He used his no trade to reject that deal. 
He didn't have to wave it to go to the Coyotes because he knows Rick Tockett apparently and um, has good chemistry with him. And it's been rumored that Arizona was a location that Phil Kessel was willing to go to from the very beginning. And when fans found out that Phil Kessel was on his way to Glendale, ticket sales soared by over 500%. How big of a game changer do you think this is for the Arizona Coyotes as a team and for the development of hockey in Arizona as a whole? I think it's really big. And I think, look at Arizona last year, and they turned a lot ahead. They were a team that was just on the brink of making the playoffs. I think Rick Tockett has done an amazing job with them, and I've been waiting for them to just turn the corner because they've had so many drafts, they've, they've had so many picks, and I think they're all starting to come in at the same time now. And I think Phil Kessel is going to be the perfect guy to, to really insulate that group. And, you know, is there any player like Phil Kessel that you can remember that has been, A, durable and not get injured, and, B, that you can just bank on year after year? He's going to get you 30 goals. Yeah, he might not be the best defensive player. He's not the most physical player. Maybe that's why he stayed healthy all of these years. But Phil Kessel, I can really pencil in, maybe more than anybody in this league, that he's going to get 30-plus goals a year. And and on a team like Arizona, or any team in the National Hockey League, really, uh, that's a premium. And I think if you look at Arizona, if you're them and you're their management team, you take a step back and you realize we were this close to making the postseason. You add in Phil Kessel, you add in 30 more goals, that might be the difference to make the playoffs in a tough Western Conference. It, it just feels weird to see Arizona starting to get good, but I think when you're in a league like, I don't know, Major League Baseball, where you see the Red Sox and the Yankees always getting the guys that they want, it's kind of discouraging because it's just like, oh, of course, of course they get their guy. They always do. They have the big pockets, yada, yada, yada. The NHL salary cap, Whatever side of the coin you're on, I think it makes the game of hockey more interesting because you don't see as many dynasties that stretch a decade or two decades. It's just so unpredictable, and you've seen it with teams like Vegas. Um, You've seen it with teams like the Colorado Avalanche, who appear to be a team on the rise. Um, It just looks a lot more intriguing, and it it definitely helps that a market like Arizona gets a big name like Phil Kessel. Now talking about Kessel's former team that's been good for a pretty long time, Penn's GM Jim Rutherford has done a lot of tinkering with his roster since Pittsburgh last won the Cup in 2017, and it's been reported that Phil Kessel didn't really get along with head coach Mike Sullivan, who, by the way, a few days after Kessel was traded, was handed a four-year extension. But when you trade Kessel and Mata to get a bottom 6'4 like Brandon Tanev on a six-year deal with a no-trade clause... It makes you really question what Jim Rutherford's game plan is. And I think the perception of the Pens has been they'd always be in the mix so long as they kept their offensive weapons together. Phil Kessel was their biggest secondary scorer, and now he's gone. He's out of the picture. And there's no guarantee that Alex Galchenyuk, who they got in the return, can fill that void completely. So in my view, Jim Rutherford is really running out of options to keep this team competitive, and he's really banking on the future prospects like Teddy Bluger to deliver. Are the Penguins nearing the end of their golden years, or has time passed them by already? I don't think time has passed them by, Steve. I think any time you've got Crosby and Malkin as your one-two, and the way Crosby keeps himself in shape, like I just don't see him as a player that's going to fall off a cliff anytime soon. You always wonder about the injury concerns and early in his career, 
had concussion problems and it was a real shame for the game to have you know him out for a period of time especially missing a whole season but i think Sidney crosby is is always going to keep that team in the mix in the eastern conference they're always going to be a threat with him and jim rutherford i think realizes too that um the current landscape of the nhl it, it's so tough to keep a core together with the cap you kind of have to have guys in and out and, and he he's shuffled the deck a few times with that team, and, and I think he realizes that small tinkering actually goes a long way with this team, and the Penguins have had an interesting run. They've had an up-and-down cycle, and there have been times where I've seen them make moves where I scratch my head, and they don't pay off. I've had times where they've really made a move, and I've scratched my head, and it has paid off. So I, I think I trust Jim Rutherford. I think anytime you've won multiple Stanley Cups, I will give you the benefit of the doubt. And I, I look at a lot of teams in that division on the rise, like the Islanders beating Pittsburgh in the first round was a big step for them. I look at New Jersey and the Rangers being more competitive. But I think the mainstays, like Washington and Pittsburgh, I, I will gamble on them over the teams I just mentioned any day just because of their star power. Yeah, at the same time, though, age is going to catch up with them, and that's what I'm concerned about with Pittsburgh is age, except for Jake Gensel because he's relatively young and – not even close to the prime of his career. So I'm not too worried about Jake Gensel, uh, especially at his contract. I think his contract is right up there with Timo Meyer as one of the best $6 million a year contracts uh, in the NHL right now. I, I really do believe that was a great signing by Jim Rutherford, but it's just everything else that he's done to shake up the team. I don't know if it's going to work out in the end. Uh, Galchenyuk is a real gamble. You don't know what you're getting out of him. If, if he can't light it up with Crosby or Malkin, I'm almost considering him a, a bust as a top three pick, just given where he was drafted. But uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see what uh, happens out of Pittsburgh there. And with teams like Columbus and the Islanders and the Rangers and the Flyers and the Hurricanes, the, the Atlantic Division, or not the Atlantic, the Metropolitan Division is kind of unpredictable a little bit. I think just five points separating second from fifth or something like that. There wasn't really much separation in the standings last year. And uh, with a lot of pieces moving around in that division, it'll be interesting to see um, who finishes where. So maybe Pittsburgh will still be a playoff team, but how much better of a team that remains to be seen. Uh, Speaking of teams where we don't know what they are, the Minnesota Wilds, like, what what is Paul Fenton up to here? Uh, you have a guy like Jason Zucker signing a five-year extension to stay with Minnesota about 12 months ago. Then at February's trade deadline, he was almost shipped to Calgary. That deal fell through. This offseason, it was reported Zucker almost got traded to Pittsburgh, but Kessel used his no trade to reject it, so that deal didn't happen. I'm just struggling to understand exactly what Paul Fenton's vision is for the organization because... The Minnesota Wild got a lot younger at the trade deadline. They shipped Mikhail Granlund to Nashville and Charlie Coyle to Boston. They got Kevin Fiala and Ryan Donato in that trade. Two younger players with some upside that I think will help. But at the same time, they gave away Nino Niederreiter to Carolina for basically nothing. And they gave Zuccarello a six-year deal in his early 30s. You look at Coyle, you look at Granlund, you look at Niederreiter... All of those guys are not even 30. They're in their mid to late 20s. And they get Zuccarello in his early 30s. I, I, again, it just boggles the mind as to what 
Paul Fenn's game plan is. So what changes, if any, do you see in Minnesota this coming season? Because at this rate, I see plenty of changes, and none of them are going to be positive. No, and I think there's a you know a coaching change that might happen there, and it's not going to be Bruce Boudreaux's fault. I think it's just naturally it's a team that has an aging core. They, they are, they're desperate to win a round in the playoffs because they've had some shortcomings there. And they're just they're trying anything they can to to just win around and, and to be relevant in that in that tough division. I don't understand the Matt Zuccarello deal. I, I see that as kind of a their backup plan when they didn't get Phil Kessel and they overpaid a little bit for Matt Zuccarello. And I just I'm, I'm scratching my head with them. I think they know that the Parise and Suter deals are kind of in the twilight now and it's going to be really, really tough for them to compete with those big contracts. And Paul Fenton walked in there knowing that that was going to be tough and it was going to be tough for him to just make moves when you have those two massive contracts. And I think he's quietly tried to rebuild while still contending, but he's had some mixed results with that. So Minnesota's the ultimate in limbo land team where it's so tough as an NHL franchise to really get any kind of buzz around you and to really sell your fan base on your direction, because I don't know their direction right now. And I look at their division, and I still like Winnipeg and Nashville and St. Louis a whole lot better. I like Dallas a whole lot better than I do Minnesota. So it's one of those things where I think Paul Fenton now is about a year away from really blowing this up and and starting a full-on rebuild. I don't know how he's going to do that now with the Matt Zuccarello deal and some other aging contracts, but it's going to be really interesting to watch Minnesota and what they do, and having a player like Phil Kessel, who is American, he went to Wisconsin, to have him turn down Minnesota, which is a hockey-mad market, and really deserves better, to have him turn that down is a head-scratcher to me, and I, I think kind of paints Minnesota in a bad light, and it's unfair, because I think that fan base deserves a winning team. When they were in the playoffs in their early days, that was a hockey-mad market, and it was really cool to watch when they went to the conference final. And I just look at them as a team that I, I look at and I say, okay, maybe they're close, but I, I still don't know which direction they're going to go. Especially when Phil Kessel accepts a trade to Arizona on top of rejecting you. The fact that you lost out to Arizona, that, that, that hurts even more, I think, if you're Minnesota. Um, so they're going to be an interesting team to watch. Another interesting team to watch is going to be the Washington Capitals in a couple of seasons because by the end of this year, Nicholas Backstrom and Braden Holpe will be unrestricted free agents. In July 2021, Ovechkin will need a new contract. Do you think the Washington Capitals will be able to keep their core intact? And if they can't, which of these three is the most likely out the door? Oh, that's a good question. I, I can't really tell you. I'm looking at my crystal ball right now. I, I just don't know which way they're going to go. Um, I think with Washington, they have bought themselves some time because they won that Stanley Cup. But they they are going to be a very interesting team going forward. I have to think Ovechkin's going to get another contract. I can't see him going anywhere else. I think he's going to retire Washington Capital. Um, but, yeah, it, it's going to be tough, I think. The way I look at Washington, um, I think that their cycle might be a little bit worse than Pittsburgh. I think Pittsburgh is still set up to have a little more long-term success. But uh, (laughs) I can't answer that question. I don't know. Uh, That's why I'm not paid a lot of money to make those decisions. 
I guess, a bit too early to look into that. Uh, it would be interesting if Backstrom doesn't get re-signed, though, because right now his AAV is cheap when you consider what he brings to the table, his overall chemistry with Ovi as well. Uh, if he doesn't get what he's asking for, it'd be interesting to see if that impacts Ovechkin's decision and maybe he decides to move on as well. To me, I think those two are practically inseparable, both on and off the ice, and I don't envision any team in which the two aren't playing on the same team or the same line. I think Ovechkin is going to follow whatever Backstrom does, um, so I think it'd be imperative for the Capitals to keep Backstrom. With Holpe, it's interesting because he's obviously a talented goaltender. They have uh, Phoenix Copley as his backup. They also have Ilya Samsonov, a promising prospect as well. But um, Samsonov in, in North America hasn't really had much time to really get acquainted with anything uh, in the AHL and the NHL. So I think it'd be wise to keep Holtby too. I, I, I think realistically right now they'll be able to keep all three. But um, yeah, that, that'll be an interesting situation to watch. We might as well look ahead to 2021 because that's when the Seattle expansion draft is going to be. And I'm sure a lot of GMs will be making business decisions with that event in mind. The reason why I bring up the Seattle franchise today is because they have officially hired their first GM in franchise history. That would be Ron Francis, who once served as GM of the Carolina Hurricanes. George McPhee, as you well know, had his moments as GM of the Capitals, but he had some not-so-good trades, particularly the one in which were he traded Philip Forsberg to Nashville for Martin Erat. That turned out not very well for the Capitals and very well for the Nashville Predators. Uh, George McPhee ends up losing his job a few seasons later, becomes the first-ever GM for the Vegas Golden Knights a few seasons after that, and since he's joined Vegas, he's made a series of solid moves for that organization in the two years he's been in that role. Do you think the decision to hire Ron Francis was the right one for the Seattle franchise? Yes, and I, I found it very funny that Don Waddell was was up for executive of the year in the NHL when really he inherited that Ron Francis team. And that Carolina team that's on the ice right now has Ron Francis' imprints all over it. And I think he got dealt with a little unfairly in Carolina when the new owner took over. I, I really think Ron Francis is better you look back on it, Ron Francis might be one of the most underrated players in the NHL. Uh, when you look at what he did with Pittsburgh, what he did with that Carolina team when they won a Stanley Cup in 2006, just an excellent player. I think he had chops to be a very good front office executive. So I think for Seattle, to bring in a veteran like that is, is going to just pay off for them. And I think what you notice with George McPhee, too, is that sometimes, you know, GMs, their cycle can be so interesting. And I look at George McPhee and yeah, people scrutinize him for that Martin Erat deal, but you have to remember the Washington Capitals had come up uh, so close to winning so many times but fell short. And I think he felt pressure from ownership and people around him to go out and make a splash, and that led to him dealing Philip Forsberg. It might have cost him his job, and he probably regrets that now, but you have to make those bold moves sometimes if you want to get your team over the top, and that move all thing didn't pay off for him, but... Getting to go to Vegas and have a clean slate, I mean, no bad contract, and you get to handpick players from the league, I think didn't get talked about enough when Vegas came in. That is a huge advantage for any team. And I think Seattle is going to have that beneficiary as well. I don't know if they're going to be able to do it as well as Vegas. I think some teams are going to really evaluate their talent better than when Vegas came in and they had that draft and had their pick of whoever. But I think if you're Ron Francis, 
that's a really appealing job to me because you can start from scratch and you can build things the way you want to build things. And you're not like Paul Fenton in Minnesota where you're inheriting long-term deals and it's tough to maneuver and it's tough to make moves when you've got a lot of contracts that are anchoring you. Yeah, hopefully uh, they manage their talent uh, better than the Ottawa Senators the past 12 months. And I don't know why I'm doing this after everything that's happened to them over the past 12 months, but let's talk about my favorite NHL team. And I will stick by my word. I will either be buying a Carlson Sharks jersey or Mark Stone Vegas jersey, but the Sens are still my favorite team regardless. There's obviously a lot of optimism with young guys like Brady Kachuk and Thomas Shabbat. You've also got guys like Alex Formanton, Drake Batherson, Logan Brown, Rudolph Spalsers, and Marcus Hogberg developing in Belleville. On the other hand, Carlson Dezingle, Duchesne, Stone, Cody Cece, and now Zach Smith have found new homes since the last time we spoke. And a lot of fans still dislike the owner. At the end of the day, Eugene Melnick is still running the show. Pretty unlikely that a downtown rink is possible after things unraveled this past winter. What are your thoughts on the sense from a roster standpoint and from an organizational standpoint? Because I think both are crucial to keeping the fan base interested and things still might get worse if neither can peacefully coexist. Okay, so let's just be clear. Both you and I from Ottawa. So, so this is uh, something that pulls at my heartstrings a little bit here. Um, the downtown arena thing to me, let's just start with that. If, if you're going to really turn around this franchise, and I look at that fan base and what they need the most, a downtown rink, I think it is the number one priority for the Ottawa Senators. You can comment on the ice, some of the decisions they've made, personnel-wise, um, some of the bad PR they had. I understand all of those things. They need to get better at that. But a downtown rink and a new place for fans to go and see, especially downtown, going to give them the facelift that they need and I think that is ultimately what these fans are waiting for. They don't want to go to Canada anymore. They want to go to a jewel in the city right downtown where they can go to a game they can go for dinner before and they can go for a drink after they can make a whole night of it and it's not hard to get to. That is going to be huge for this franchise and I really hope that they put shovel to the ground soon and get that done. In terms of where they are, I'm pretty bullish on Ottawa, and I have been. People like to kick sand at the Ottawa Senators, but I look at what they've done, all things considered. Brady Kachuk, Thomas Shabbat, you've got great young talent around them. Drake Matheson I really, really like. I don't think it's going to take them that long to turn the corner and to be competitive again. I think the concern is, as long as Eugene Melnick is there, can they offer Brady Kachuk or Thomas Shabbat enough money, and will they want to stay? That is the biggest move for Pierre Dorian in the next couple of years. You need to sign Brady Kachuk and Thomas Shabbat to a long-term deal, give them the money that they deserve, and you need to slap a C on Brady Kachuk or Thomas Shabbat, and that will really help, I think, fans get behind this team again and not worry about stars leaving town. I can argue... Some of the moves that they got in a lot of trouble for, especially the Kyle Turris trade, ended up paying off. There are certain players you don't want to give a lot of term and money to. Kyle Turris, I can say now, was probably a good decision. Matt Duchesne, I was a bit nuke-warm on, but I think overall Matt Duchesne is a great offensive player. He's not great defensively. I wouldn't have given him that contract that Nashville did, so I'm okay with that. The Mark Stone one, 
I'm going to get a Vegas Mark Stone jersey. You pose that question to me, Steve. I'm going to get a Vegas Mark Stone jersey. Mark, Mark Stone is the heart and soul of the Ottawa Senators, and people felt that when he left. That was yep. the toughest pill to swallow out of any of the players that have left Ottawa. Mark Stone by far hurt the most because he was captain material. He was the face of the Ottawa Senators after Carlson left. And watching him go to Vegas and verbally agree to a contract not even an hour after the transaction was completed – I don't blame him for doing it, but man, that freaking hurt. Look, I, I think Eric Brandstrom is going to be good, and I don't want to discourage people who um, haven't seen Eric Brandstrom. He's a really good young player. He could be a stud defenseman. But the thing is, I look at that departure. I look at there have been some key departures in Ottawa, okay? The Alfredson one, it, it definitely stung. But I can argue Alfredson was in the last couple years of his career, Mark Stone is in the prime of his career, and just the way he played the game, you're never going to find another one like him, and especially because he was a late-round pick. You developed, you saw, and he was a cornerstone kind of guy. And when you look at Brady Kachuk living with Mark Stone, his dad, Keith Kachuk, said a number of times on Ottawa Radio, find a way to get Mark Stone signed. Ultimately, I don't blame Mark Stone for wanting to go to Vegas and signing there. You can make more money. Team is winning. That's a good situation for him to be in. But losing him is is really tough. And Mark Stone is actually my favorite player right now in the NHL, regardless of if he plays in Ottawa or not. Um, I I think his ceiling has – he's got so much potential. That's a tough loss for them. But I'm bullish on Ottawa, Steve. I I really think that they can turn this around quickly. Craig Anderson, that's an interesting one. I don't know what they're going to do with him. Um, ideally, if I had my one-two goaltending tandem, it would be it would be Anders Nilsson and Marcus Hogberg. I think with Hogberg, he's been developing in the American Hockey League, but you need to see what he can do at the NHL level soon and see what you have there. Yeah, I like the additions of Ron Hainsey and Tyler Ennis. Zaitsev and Bram bring a boost to their penalty kill. I saw that with a lot of the names they brought in. Uh, helping out the penalty kill, like the Senators, they have a decent amount of prospects and regular players that can do a fair bit of damage offensively. Keeping the puck out of the net was Ottawa's Achilles heel. Didn't matter if they have Matt Duchesne in the lap, Mark Stone in the lap, Ryan Dezingle in the lineup, Cody Ceci in the lap. It didn't matter how good the Sens were offensively or who was playing. They couldn't stop the puck and it, it didn't help that uh, their goaltending wasn't up to snuff for, for the most part but uh, Anders Nielsen came in and put up uh, pretty decent numbers uh, following the trade uh, from Vancouver um, I like the fact that they brought in Duclair on a prove-it deal wise move by Dorian there uh, they made some choices at the NHL draft that I thought were very interesting could pay off for them down the road uh, as the rebuild continues like I said a lot of young prospects in the system already if they gave Cody Cece a contract extension long-term, I think the average annual value goes above $5 million. That would be a long-term mistake as your team starts to get better. I think Cody Cece needed a change of scenery. He wasn't going to be the guy in Ottawa. It was wise for both sides to move on. They just need to stick with the process, build trust in the fan base, and just ride it out. Back to Craig Anderson. The fact that he posted a goals against over 3.5, but somehow still managed 
to post a save percentage over 900 on a team this bad is actually very good. Uh, and I think a team that needs depth between the pipes could really use his services. The Sens have a lot of goalies under contract outside of Craig Anderson, Anders Nielsen, who you just mentioned, Marcus Hogberg, who you just mentioned, Philip Gustafson, Joey Decord. They drafted Matt Sogard in the second round uh, in June's draft. To me, as much as it pains me to say it because he's given absolutely everything and he's probably the best goalie the Sens have ever had in their history, I think Craig Anderson is on a new team by at least Christmas because it, it just doesn't seem realistic to keep him around. And I think to have him in a lesser role would would just be unfair to him. So Yeah, um, I think that's fair. And at this stage of his career, um, if Craig wants to move on, uh, I think he deserves to go to a contending team. He's been nothing but a good pro with Ottawa, and he's been great for Ottawa too and really stabilized their goaltending. When you look back at that deal, Brian Elliott for Craig Anderson, Ottawa definitely won that deal. Mm-hmm. in a lot of respects, and I just look at Ottawa's goaltending, and that's going to be the biggest biggest thing going forward. I like their young forwards. I like their blue line. I think Branstrom and Shabbat uh, are going to be great pillars on that blue line for a long time, but it's all, it always comes down to goaltending, and people were surprised they took a goaltender in the second round when they took Sogard this year in the draft. My thing is you can never have enough goaltending. You know, if I were an NHL team, I would draft a goaltender almost every single year because you just never know. That is the toughest position to figure out. And if I'm the Sens, I want to get Marcus Hogberg up here next year, maybe have him play anywhere between 20 and 25 games, see what he can do at this level. And I think you have Gustafson next year. I like Joey Dackard. I think he's going to be you know, an interesting prospect going forward. So in goal is where they really have to figure it out. And it could take some time. So I'm okay with having... Dacker, Gustafson, maybe Sogard in a few years, try to compete and develop and, and let them have some time to marinate as well and develop as players. I think by drafting Matt Sogard, it also made me question how much faith they had in Philip Gustafson because he's got a lot of potential, but his numbers from this past year, not exactly great. So we'll see what happens with him. Um, which team has really impressed you this offseason and how much success will uh, they gain from it? Interesting question. Uh, we've talked about Arizona. Okay, so I'll briefly touch on them again. I, I think the Phil Kessel move, um, excellent move for them. I, I really like him reuniting with Rick Tockett. And who knows, maybe Phil Kessel is that player that pushes that young core over the edge and he flourishes there and that could be, that could be a playoff team next year. I will say this, this happened recently and I still can't believe this deal, but Hey, Ken Holland got rid of the Milan Lucic contract, and he's barely been on the job three months. You bring in James Neal. I know he had a rough year in Calgary last year, but every other year in the NHL, he's put up 20 or more goals. He gets to maybe play with Connor McDavid next year, and who knows, maybe that turns him into a 20-goal scorer again. Maybe that turns him into a 30-goal scorer again. Not saying that Edmonton is, is completely fixed yet, but that's a step in the right direction. And I don't understand what Brad Treeling is doing in Calgary and why you would take on Milan Lucic, but I, I think Edmonton uh, wins this deal. And I think Ken Holland is uh, in, in the right place, and I think he's the right man to, to fix that team. I was actually going to ask you about that uh, as well. You, you you think, obviously, Edmonton is the winner of that trade. I 
the, the fact that Lucic has a no-move clause, which Calgary is still going to honor, by the way, uh, he's under contract for the next four years, basically automatically protected in the expansion draft now, which uh, good luck with that, Calgary. I think the fact the Oilers just got rid of Lucic, forget about bringing James Neal, the fact that they got rid of Lucic's contract is the biggest win of all because that that contract, I think, was going to really hold them back. And whatever progress they were going to make, that contract was always going to be over their heads. And now that that contract is gone, that's huge for Ken Holland. Uh, Speaking of teams that are leaving your head scratching, which team has you uh, scratching your head constantly the most this offseason and uh, when do you think they will pay the price if they do pay the price? I'm going to say Montreal, um, just because of the Sebastian Ajo contract. Because I look at that and I say to myself, if you're going to offer sheet somebody, the goal is you have to make the other team sweat. and You have to make them have a tough decision. And I think Carolina, Don Waddell came out and said it. He's like, wow, Mark Bergevin just did all the work for us. And Ajo signed that contract under a week later, and he's still with Carolina Hurricanes. But they didn't, they didn't back Carolina into a corner, and now they're left without a star player. And I, I look at Carey Price, and I, I'm kind of reading in between his comments a little bit here, Steve. But, you know, he's talking about Montreal and their prospects. And he says, yeah, they're great and stuff, but he's like, I want to wait until they, they make the NHL and see what they can do because he knows – um, it's great to say you have great prospects, but it's a huge gamble if they pay off or not. He, he's been there a while. He's been patient. He wants to win right now. And I, I look at what Montreal hasn't done and the lack of moves that they've been able to make, and I, I just see them as a team that still needs to make a big move. You've got Shea Weber for big money. You've got Carey Price making a lot of money, who ultimately could be the best goaltender in the world. He's proven that. And you, you still have not been able to surround him with top talent. And maybe they will. They still have some time this summer. There are still a lot of restricted free agents. If they want to go down the offer sheet route again, they can definitely go down that route. There are there are options. But I, I look at the, the Montreal Canadiens as a team that still needs to make a move. Yes, they were close to making the playoffs last year, but you can't bank on that again. And I, I still think that they have got some room to improve. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because if... <laughs> If you go down the route of Mitch Marner and Mitch Marner signs that contract um, and it's over $10.5 million and you're going to have to part with four original first-round picks, are you really willing to do that if you're Mark Bergman? Like, how much better does Mitch Marner make you, especially in that tough Atlantic division? Mark Bergman's one of those GMs where – he has a plan that looks really good, and then a couple of seasons later, everyone's just like, what are you doing? What have you done with this organization? So, yeah, uh, Montreal's an interesting case. It all it also boggles the mind that if they just added another $1,000 per year, the compensation would have been two firsts, a second, and a third. At, at that point, you know, maybe Carolina thinks twice about that offer and takes the compensation and the Habs draft Ajo. That was kind of the most perplexing thing about that. For me, a couple of teams. The Flyers getting Justin Braun for a second and a third. I don't know if that's going to make their team better. Uh, A fifth round pick to Winnipeg to get Kevin Hayes was a good move, but doesn't fully address their needs, I don't think. And the Gudis for Niskanen and Swap, I don't really get that. That's kind of weird. But I think the Hawks take the cake for me. They get Leonard signed to a one-year deal. They shed Anisimov's contract, but they bring in Zach Smith and his no-trade for the next two years. 
They get Andrew Shaw back from Montreal. They get Calvin DeHaan from the Hurricanes. They acquire Olimata for the Pens. And then they trade away a promising defenseman in Henry Yoki Hiru for Alex Nylander. Like, next year, you're going to have Stroman Debrinkit to sign next year as RFAs. You have Eric Gustafson, who isn't even making $2 million per year and quietly got 60 points last year with the Keith and the Seabra contracts looking as bad as they are right now. Technically, Eric Gustafson is your best defenseman right now, and he's probably going to ask for a significant pay raise. I know that Stan Bowman has a plan to make this team better, and they got Kirby Dock third overall, but... Passing over Bo and Byron makes even less sense after trading away a solid defender in Yoki Hiru. Like, just imagine Yoki Hiru and Bjorkvist on uh, the Hawks' blue line for the years to come. That that would be interesting to watch for Chicago. But uh, now Yoki Hiru's in Buffalo, and I'm not sure exactly what to make of that trade. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, the Tampa Bay Lightning? Because they got rid of JT Miller. They traded him to Vancouver. They got a first-round pick out of that, which could actually turn to be decent if the Canucks continue to not be good. Um, they re-signed Cedric Paquette to a two-year contract. Uh, they bring in Curtis McElhaney as well for two years. Uh, they kept Braden Coburn uh, at a cheaper price, two-year deal there. Obviously, Braden Point's their top priority to sign. I'm confident at some point they'll get a deal done there. Dan Girardi likely gone. Anton Strawman already gone to Florida. What are your thoughts on the Tampa Bay Lightning? Do you, did you expect them to do anything else, like really shake up their roster this season, or for the most part, just standing pat, do you think that's the right call for them? No, I, I would stand pat, and I know that that is going to sound weird, given the fact they got swept in the first round, but this is a team that won over 60 games, and I I would come right back with that lineup. Obviously, with the cap, you're going to have a couple of casualties, and who knows, maybe the team they put on the ice next year isn't as strong. It likely won't be as strong as what they just had a year ago. But I think if Washington's any indication, you keep coming back with the same core, you take your chance year after year, and there is going to be a year where the puck bounces your way and the seas open up and you got to capitalize. And I have to think with John Cooper, the goaltending they have, Steven Stamkos, Braden Point, Kucherov, Hedman, like they're going to figure it out. And I would, I would trust that the players they have assembled – have a chip on their shoulder now. It's pretty embarrassing when you win the President's Trophy for the number one record in the league, and then you go out in the first round of Columbus. I, I think that ultimately is going to give them the ultimate medal that they need to to go out there and to perform. And I really like Tampa Bay. And I, I even think the JT Miller trade, good for them. Like, if you're a Vancouver, like, you don't know what your team's going to be like next year. You, you can argue that Michael Furland and JT Miller are going to help, and they're, they're better than they were last year, but... I don't know if that puts them over the edge in a tough Western Conference. And Tampa Bay's now got that first-round pick, and we've seen what they do with draft picks. Uh, they can draft pretty well. So I, I think at Tampa Bay, you look at things from a you know a, a more calm perspective, and I think if you think rationally about this team, they're they're in good shape, and they got prospects coming from Syracuse as well. So I, I'm very confident in Tampa Bay, and they're actually my prediction to win the Stanley Cup next year. Yeah, even though they got swept, I'm sure a lot of people are just looking at uh, the power rankings and they just look at Tampa Bay as the team to beat uh, just with the roster that they have. And you look at the roster that they uh, assembled uh, this past year, Yanni Gord was, for the first 20 to 25 games, a point-per-game player almost, 
and there was like a lot of ebbs and flows offensively where, you know, one line would get a lot of the points and then a couple weeks later, the other line steps up and gets more points. You look at uh, Anthony Sorelli, who has evolved into one of their best, most efficiently used penalty killers, and he's got quite the ceiling as well. And they're, they're still the team to beat. You look at a lot of the other teams, they're trying to get better. They're trying to match up with Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay, they just got to continue to trust the process. And you look at dynasties like the Red Wings in the mid-1990s where, you know, they were like first round, second round exits, and then they finally made it to the Cup Finals, and then New Jersey beats them just like that. And then they finally win the Stanley Cup in 97. They win it again in 98, in 02. They assemble a good team. They win it again. Not all of the dynasties are assembled overnight, and they don't win the Stanley Cup right away. So, you know, if it happens again, obviously, next year, then maybe you consider it. But, you know, if it's just one year and you're banking on that same roster to replicate that kind of success in the regular season and learn from their playoff failure, you, you go right back at it. And I, I think you're right, Colin, that they're, they're going with the best approach that they have. Uh, turning back to, to the Philadelphia Flyers for a second, um, this deal looked all right at first, but it seems with every hour I look at it, it's got a very bad stench to it. I'm talking about Kevin Hayes and the seven-year contract he signed with the Philadelphia Flyers. This guy never had a 50-point season until this year, never hit 30 goals in a season, solid two-way center, don't get me wrong, but suddenly worth a bit over $7 million per year and worth a no-move clause for the first three years, which automatically protects him in the expansion draft and could expose a young forward or defenseman that the Flyers might want to keep. So if Chuck Fletcher wants to keep the band together, he's going to have to give Ron Francis some compensation so that Seattle doesn't take any of Philadelphia's assets. Is there a contract signed this offseason worse than the one Kevin Hayes signed in Philly? Hmm. No, I think that that's um, it's a it's an interesting move. And I think in the case of Winnipeg, I was going to say, like, they should try to re-sign Kevin Hayes because year after year, they're always trading away assets for another center. And we've seen it year after year now. But I also said, too, they need to be very cautious because I wouldn't give him the contract that Philadelphia just signed him to. You know, he's a guy that, that hovers around 50 points. Yes, he's good defensively. But I think with Philadelphia, I think they were really in on Joel Quenville. He ultimately went to Florida. Um, and I think Philadelphia, they want to be a marquee American team, and they're not afraid to spend money. Um, so Elaine Vino comes in. Vino and Hayes know each other from New York. So I think that's part of it. But I do not like that deal at all, and I don't know if it moves Philadelphia any closer to the postseason. I, re- I really don't. And, you know, the thing is, it's the term of that deal. It's the years where um, I think this is going to become a really costly deal. So I'm still scratching my head over that one. Yeah, it might be the new Milan Lucic. Uh, that that might be a stretch. But, yeah, it's <laughs> it's pretty bad on the surface. Um Speaking of bad deals on the surface, until he got bought out, Corey Perry's contract sucked and uh, that led to him getting bought out by the Anaheim Ducks. He ends up taking a one-year deal with the Dallas Stars that could pay him as much as $3.25 million when you factor in all the potential performance bonuses. Uh, you look at Wayne Simmons. He takes a one-year deal with the Devils at $5 million. Who reaps the most rewards, Corey Perry or Wayne Simmons? And what are the odds that both aren't traded by the end of the year? 
Interesting. I, I think I think Corey Perry is going to be the one that reaps the most rewards. I think I like Dallas a lot better. I like that they have got lots of mobile defensemen that can move the puck. And I look at Corey Perry now, and he doesn't have the weight of having a heavy contract. I think that's going to help. I think that's going to take a big burden off of him. Wayne Simmons, to me, is an interesting one because I think he can still play that power forward style of game, but I worry about him and his skating long term. So I, I think if there's anyone that might get traded again, it's probably going to be Wayne Simmons. Um, however, if I'm New Jersey, quietly I like what they've done this summer. I like P.K. Subban and I like Wayne Simmons. I think that makes them a more well-rounded team. That gives them some veterans on that team as well. But I, I'm a big Corey Perry fan. He's also a guy that can get under your skin as well. And I, I still think Corey Perry um, could quietly put up 15, 20 goals this year. And I think Dallas uh, could use that. I really like that addition for them. I thought he was going to go to the Edmonton Oilers. I had heard a lot of rumors about that. But I think he landed in a good spot in Dallas. And the Dallas team is going to be good next year. And I think uh, bulking up uh, by adding Joe Pavelski, that adds offensive depth there. Um, so I, th- I think you're right. I, I, I think I'd lean more towards Corey Perry in that regard, especially when you consider the type of game that – Wayne Simmons plays um he's one of those power forwards like Lucic and Bacchus in Boston we're starting to see it there where you know the big physical guys with offensive upside they start to wear down after a while and then it really starts to show and I I think Wayne Simmons is kind of feeling a little bit of that downturn there um I don't think we'll see a drastic difference but I'm I think part of the reason why Wayne Simmons didn't really do well in Nashville and Philadelphia last year is because he didn't get the kind of exposure that he did in his last couple of years with Philadelphia. And um, I think if you put him in a bigger role in New Jersey, maybe he'll do better. But uh, I I think Corey Perry stands to reap the most rewards. That is, if he stays healthy, because the kind of injuries he's had to deal with uh, back maybe results in losing a step or two and and that could harm his production, but we'll see. Um, Speaking of we'll see, we'll see if there's a lockout in a couple of years because the current NHL CBA is a 10-year deal that's set to expire after the 2021-2022 season. Three years time, the NHL CBA is set to expire. The NHL, however, can opt out September 1st, 2019, which is not that far away. In fact, it's a bit over a month away. Uh, That would force the CBA to expire after this coming season. And we know that Bettman doesn't fear a lockout. We've seen three lockouts in his tenure, including one in which an entire season was sacrificed in 2004, 2005. So as much as people don't want to bring it up, I might as well pose the question to you. Yes or no, the NHL will opt out of the CBA September 1st and explain why or why not they will. I'm going to offer my opinion on this. It's not going to be popular, but yes, they they are, and we've seen lockouts before, and it, it seems like they always go down this route, and this is the way they negotiate. So in a short answer for you, Steve, yes, I think that's a definite possibility. Will we see a season sacrifice, whether it's full year, half a year? Do you think it drags on beyond October if um, there's a contract dispute? I really hope not, but I wouldn't rule anything out. Uh, the way these guys negotiate, they're shrewd, yeah. and, and they don't care. You know, it, it's all about the money and them getting the best deals. So if that means they have to stop a year, as much as they do say they care about the fans, they don't ultimately care about the fans in this kind of scenario. So I could really see it. 
I could really see it. I've seen a few in my lifetime. I wouldn't be surprised if we see another one. Yeah. If you take a look at how wild this offseason has been, probably <laughs> tempts the NHL more to opt out on September 1st. But uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, Colin, where can people find you on social media? Well, you can get me on Twitter, at Teske Radio. Um, and again, you can listen to me anytime on Sportsnet 590. Ben, I've got a lot of great work coming up in the fall. Um, I've got a couple podcasts that I am uh, set to launch. I'm not uh, ready to explain what they are yet or who's going to be on them, but I'm really excited with some some passion projects I've been working on behind the scenes and going to be unveiling them soon. So if you want all that information and you want to hear the latest, uh, just give me a follow on Twitter at Teske Radio. Perfect. Colin, thanks so much. Always a pleasure to chat hockey with you and uh, love to do this again anytime. Thank you, Steve. Pleasure's all mine. All right, that just about does it for this special edition of the Lace Em Up podcast. I'm Steve Ellsworth. Talk again soon.